When we look out at the universe, sometimes we get lucky, and in the direction we happen to be looking in, we find that there aren't just stars or galaxies or even groups of galaxies, but these massive, massive structures, clusters of galaxies that can be as rich as containing thousands of galaxies the mass and size of the Milky Way or even larger. These are some of the largest collections and clumps of mass and matter that are found in the entire observable universe. They do a number of remarkable things, including providing the most concentrated large-scale sources of gravity we find anywhere in the universe, and also being home to some of the most advanced stages of stellar and galactic evolution found anywhere in the universe. What are these massive collections of galaxy clusters and what do they teach us about the universe? Find out as we dive in on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. Whenever you think about the universe, there are two complementary ways we have of approaching things. First is we can look at things from a theoretical point of view, where we take the laws of physics and whatever set of initial conditions we want to start with, and we can simulate or we can calculate what's going to happen. How will whatever aspect of the universe we're looking at evolve with time? And the other aspect is observationally. We can look out with our telescopes and instruments to the absolute limit of what we're capable of seeing and record what's there. Only by bringing these two aspects together, the theoretical and the observational, can we ever hope to disentangle what's actually happening in our observable universe. And here to help us understand this and how it's relevant for galaxy clusters and gravitational lensing, I'm so pleased to welcome to the program University of Chicago PhD candidate Gaurav Kuller. Gaurav, welcome to the program, and I'm so pleased to have you here. Thank you so much, Ethan. I'm so excited to be here. A little nervous, but mostly excited. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll get you over those nerves real fast, and then we'll get right into a great discussion. So when I sort of think about these galaxy clusters, I think about them as these are the largest collections of mass and matter out there that form a single bound structure that's going to remain bound into the future. What I tend to think less about, because I'm a theorist, is what's physically going on inside these clusters, that I tend to sort of not think about what's happening to the gas and the dust and the plasma and the stars and the material that's in the process of forming stars within these clusters. I feel like by omitting those things, I'm really cheating myself in a way. I'm really missing out on the details of what's happening in there. It's like knowing about a human body, but not knowing anything about anatomy. So when you think about galaxy clusters, uh, maybe from the inside out or the outside in, however you prefer, um, what are the things going on? What are sort of the parts of a galaxy cluster's anatomy that you like to think about? So, I, Ethan, I think this is a great setup because uh, the inside out 
way of thinking about it is exactly what I do on a daily basis. In fact, most of the work that I do from day to day in understanding galaxies that live inside clusters can be actually applied to galaxies that don't live in clusters too. Um, so what I do is I look at the quantum mechanical phenomena happening in atoms that cause absorption and emission uh, of photons, uh, which when accumulated over you know, light years across uh, uh, gas clouds, essentially result in these photons reaching us uh, in telescopes that are either on ground uh, or, or, or in space. And uh, my, my whole job on a day-to-day -day basis is to connect these microscopic phenomena that are going on uh, in these nebular gas clouds and galaxies to sort of a larger picture of uh, what does it mean for the formation and evolution of star or stellar populations in these galaxies. The reason galaxy clusters are really exciting, which you've already pointed out, is that these are some of the most extreme laboratories in the world. It's a very, I believe it's a very overused term uh, uh, attributed to clusters, but I love using it anyway. Galaxy clusters are some of the most fascinating labs in the world. And because everything that's going on in a cluster is so extreme, it has ramifications for how stars form in these galaxies that live inside clusters. And that's what I'm, I'm, I, I usually study on a day-to-day -day basis. All right. Well, there's there's a whole lot that's in there because when I think about the well, when I think about the non-stars in the universe, I think about okay, we are basically going to take uh, matter and we're going to reduce it down to its super fundamental components. Right? We have these astronomical scales that we're looking at where there are maybe you know 10 to the 50 something or maybe even 10 to the 60 something particles inside of these galaxy clusters and then we're considering the aggregate signal from like individual let's see we have hydrogen atoms where the electron and the proton have the same spin and the spins flip and you emit a special photon called a 21 centimeter photon that's that's a radio signal then you can say okay well we also have these cases where you have this uh, hot ionized gas and what happens is the gas ionizes to a certain level depending on the temperature and the energy of the light that strikes it and then the electrons find these ions again and they cascade down the energy levels emitting light of specific wavelengths similarly wherever you have emission you have the possibility of having the reverse process happen and having absorption instead so you can look at what types of light is getting absorbed and you know what types of atoms molecules and ions are there um and then you have these additional effects, like if there are magnetic fields in your galaxies or your galaxy clusters and background light passes through it, that light's going to get polarized and the polarization direction will rotate in a property called Faraday rotation. And if you have a signal of, say, light that comes through an ionized region, all of a sudden that light is going to get boosted to higher energies through either the thermal or kinetic, what we call the Sunyaev-Zeldovich effect, which is like, okay, I have light coming in and it's going to scatter off of these particles and some of these particles can boost it to higher energies. 
And that's without ever even considering the stars inside. So when you're saying, okay, I'm interested in the stars, I start thinking about, okay, well, what's out there before we ever start thinking about the stars? And now if I'm going to consider, like you do, the stars inside of these galaxy clusters, what do I want to be thinking of next? Yeah, so I think I think the way I like to think about this is that um, galaxies are essentially an aggregate of you know, stellar populations and dust and gas. And um, a typical galaxy cluster could have anywhere between you know, 50 to 1,000 galaxies just uh, uh, hanging out in tandem uh, with uh, bound by the gravitational potential well of what we call the cluster dark matter halo. And um, the impact of this environment has to show up in sort of the mass assembly properties of these individual galaxies, which at the end of the day are made up of these stars. So whether you study uh, galaxy evolution inside or outside a galaxy cluster, um, you you have sort of a, a, a very interesting observable, which is stellar emission or absorption or nebular emission or absorption associated with stellar populations. And I think what I do from, from on a day-to-day basis is try to figure out what is the impact of this external envir- extreme environment called a galaxy cluster on the way galaxies across cosmic time or across redshift uh, form and eventually stop forming these stars. And I think that I think I think that's a pretty exciting question to answer. Uh, something we we are still kind of uh, fumbling in the dark about. You know, that also seems like a really difficult question to try and answer because on the one hand, you have all of these intrinsic properties that happen, uh, and those are you know only understood to a degree. So you know, you have stellar populations that form whenever you have a merger or whenever you have gas infall or whenever you have gravitational disruption. And then you have uh, external factors as well, like, okay, but this galaxy isn't just isolated and forming stars, it has matter falling into it. And it has uh, other galaxies around it pulling on it. And if it's in a galaxy group or a galaxy cluster, um, there is all sorts of matter, both normal and dark, in the space between the galaxies. And if there's a large gravitational potential, these galaxies zip around inside of whatever structure they're bound to, and they can have their gas stripped, or they can have star formation events triggered, or they can um, tidally interact with other galaxies. And so it's like you can imagine an isolated galaxy that um, is maybe a simplified version of this, but then you go ahead and put it in a cluster environment, and doesn't this just make things messier? How can you know when you look at a galaxy what to attribute to the intrinsic properties of the galaxy versus what to attribute to the extrinsic properties of the cluster that it's in. I, I think I think you posed the question in a perfect way, and I could have done a better job there. Uh, it's a challenge. It's a big challenge, and I think I think um, one of the ways in in which folks try to do this is combine a host of different sorts of information together. So. Uh, one of the information might be well, one kind of information might be spectroscopic information that uh, that contains some sort of signatures of ages of these star populations and let's say the chemical composition or metallicity of these star populations. 
Um, on, on top of that, if you mix morphological information associated with this in a specific epoch of observation, let's say at a time when the universe was, uh, you know, uh, two, bil two, two or three billion years old only, um, and you mix both the morphological information of a galaxy with the spectroscopic information, you start to disentangle or break degeneracies between in isolated internal galaxy effects and uh, external effects, uh, for example, due to environment. And by no means is this a solved question. And I think um, uh, one of the ways that we are trying, that at least I am trying to uh, contribute here is to take a galaxy cluster sample that is selected in a specific way um, that doesn't bias sort of this, this, this attempt to disentangle internal and external galaxy evolution phenomena. All right. Well, let's let's go to a, an example of this then. One of the things that I like to think about, you've you've brought up the word morphology and for those of you listening who are like what does this mean morphology? It just means shape in general. It means if you were to take a look at your galaxy and say, how would I classify it, right? What's the what's the length of the long axis versus the length of the other axes? Uh, is it a spiral or an elliptical or a ring galaxy or some irregular galaxy? How large is it? Um, you will find that you get sort of an average shape for a galaxy and an average size and an average scale. Um, for elliptical galaxies, you typically expect, okay, um, if I were to look at a random sample of galaxies, I would expect that these galaxies would be randomly oriented. Like I would see the same number of galaxies that had the long axis pointing vertically as I did pointing horizontally, as I did pointing at any specific in-between angle. Um, so if I said, okay, Intrinsically, we can worry about what's a spiral, what's an elliptical, what stage of evolution are these galaxies in, how many are actively forming new stars and in what numbers, uh, versus how many haven't formed stars for maybe even billions of years. This is all something that I like to think if we had every galaxy in the universe was in a totally isolated environment where they're all separated from one another, you could just look at these properties and say, where is the galaxy in space? How far back in time am I looking? And you can make all sorts of general patterns and extract all sorts of general, general information about, on average, how does the universe evolve? But then, even if you were to just look at this morphology question and you were to put these galaxies in a galaxy cluster, one of the things that happens is if I have a large mass to this galaxy cluster, uh, the mass that's in front of the galaxies that I'm looking at is going to have an effect on the light that travels towards us. It's going to, by virtue of having all of this mass, it's going to distort the space around it. It's going to distort the fabric of space itself. So when the light comes towards us, leaves the galaxies and come towards us, it gets distorted. One of the distortion that happens due to weak gravitational lensing is this shape distortion. You actually get all the galaxies around your mass. It's like if I were to 
picture a central mass, a single central mass, and I were to draw concentric circles around that mass, it would be like stretching every galaxy out along the direction of the circle and compressing it in the direction perpendicular to those circles. So this seems, on the surface at least to me, this seems like a really big challenge when you're looking at one of these galaxy clusters and you're looking at the galaxies in it. You have both this intrinsic variation and these external effects that happen. Um, you know, to, to ask you too big of a question, how do you even begin dealing with a problem like this? Yeah, so I think <laughs> I think the way um, I like to do this is basically age saving these galaxies and sort of combining information from uh, all the optical and infrared flux that I'm getting from, from, from galaxies that live in clusters uh, and age date their stellar populations based on the spectral signatures, essentially. And uh, what this allows me to do is it allows me to not only uh, sort of make a guess about how long this galaxy has lived in the cluster and how likely it has been influenced by, for example, uh, the motion of the galaxy moving through the galaxy cluster and pressure being exerted by the galaxy cluster medium onto the onto the galaxy. It's as if like an object is going through like a fluid medium and the pressure that the medium exerts on it. Uh, how much an impact is this thing called, and this thing is called ramp pressure stripping. So how much ramp pressure stripping is likely to influence the chemical and age properties of the galaxy. Um, and I compare that with uh, something I call the star formation history of a galaxy, which is basically a correlation between uh, these star formation rates as a function of time of the galaxy, uh, when it's, for example, started forming stars. And all of this information put in together gives us a hint about sort of the archaeological uh, record of this galaxy, both uh, when it well, this galaxy potentially started entering a galaxy cluster and its current situation in the cluster uh, at the epoch of observation. I don't know if I've done a good job answering that question, but I think I think uh, this is where I usually uh, like to combine uh, velocity, morphology, uh, and age properties of a galaxy to answer some of the questions here. No, and I think that's I think that's eminently fair, right? When you have a problem that you want to solve or examine, you want to take all the relevant information that you can out there and combine it to give yourself the best answer, right? Uh, astrophysics in general is full of examples of this where, you know, it's not just the specific thing you look at that's relevant for your work, but it's also uh, taking into account research, observations, and theoretical work done by other people um, that you can synthesize that all together to give yourself the best picture. So if I were to think about any one individual galaxy within a galaxy cluster, it will have its own history. It will have its own unique star formation history where it formed stars in bursts at this time and this time and this time so that when you look at the light from it, you can sort of see these different stellar populations that are all present within it. You will know that it, okay, right now when I look at it, I can measure the different galaxies 
species within the cluster, and I can get an estimate for how quickly is this galaxy moving through the cluster. I can look at it and see how much neutral gas is still present within it. Has it is it displaying evidence that this galaxy has lost all of its gas already, meaning that maybe it's been in the cluster a very long time, or if it's been there a short time, it's been there a violent short time, or is it still full of gas, which perhaps indicates that it hasn't had all this gas stripped out of it yet or locked up into new stellar populations? Um, so you know, you, you brought up metallicity too. I can look at metallicity, which is basically how many elements are there in this galaxy that aren't hydrogen or helium. Everything that isn't hydrogen or helium, because most of the universe is hydrogen and helium, to an astronomer is a metal. So how many metals are in there? Well, we know that that gives you a measure of how many generations of stars and how many types of stars and how much star formation overall has occurred within this galaxy. So you take all of these different measurements of each and every galaxy you're looking at, and presumably when you combine that with, you know, the shape that you observe of this galaxy and the multi-wavelength spectral information that you're gaining about these galaxies, presumably if you think you know what you're doing, you can at least on average uh, reconstruct a probable history for the galaxy that you're observing. Uh, that's absolutely right, Ethan. For a specific galaxy observed at a specific uh, redshift or you know the epoch of observation um and with the specific set of chemical morphological properties that's exactly what uh the technique that i use does uh which is synthesizing stellar populations and galaxies so stellar population synthesis does exactly that a combination of uh, different observational information along with theoretical understanding of how populations of stars evolve uh, gives us a probabilistic star formation history for a particular galaxy. Not only that, I would also like to add that a lot of the work that is going on today uh, has sort of moved beyond individual galaxy characterization, where we try to study statistical populations of galaxies that could potentially have come from the same parent population of galaxies. And when I say parent population of galaxies, what I essentially mean is galaxies that span a very specific range of galaxy properties. So you essentially look at a statistical sample of galaxies that live in clusters. And the beauty of uh, you know 20, uh, the 21st century is that you've got all these awesome data sets, uh, which are where, where you can map a similar range of properties, but not for galaxy cluster galaxies, but for field galaxies. And then you just compare the two and that comparison often allows you to shed light between uh, environment-specific influences on galaxy evolution and non-environment-specific influences. And I think I think the field is moving more and more in this direction, where both cluster and field observations are absolutely essential to make this comparison and break sort of this degeneracy. I think that's a really, really important point because one of the things you said uh, really resonated with me, and I've heard it over and over again, particularly from uh, junior people in the field, is that we are not just looking at individual objects and saying, here's what I think this object is doing and why. We are 
really living in the era of big data in astronomy, where we're not just looking at, you know, one object here and an object there and comparing them. We have so many more objects at our disposal, such large numbers of objects that we're looking at with these massive surveys, things like the Dark Energy Survey and the Gaia Survey and the South Pole Telescope Survey and uh, multi-wavelength stuff when we consider them. We have like XMM Newton and Chandra in the x-rays, and we have infrared surveys, and we have ultraviolet surveys and optical surveys, and basically we have all of these different sets of observatories that I'll just say are sort of panchromatic and pan-wavelength surveys, that we are looking at the universe in all of these different wavelengths, in all of these different locations, and in some places we're looking at them in all of these different wavelengths together. So you can start to compare not just like, oh, a few galaxies or an individual galaxy, but you're really talking about anything you want to look at. You have at least hundreds of thousands, and in some cases, millions of objects that you can actually contrast and compare and learn what sort of large-scale statistical differences you're likely to see. One of the big surprises that came to my attention recently is that we used to not know when did the universe form the majority of its stars. What is the star formation rate today compared to what it's been throughout our cosmic history? And now we know. We know that the universe at its absolute peak of star formation had that occur about 11 billion years ago, that the universe formed progressively more and more and more stars until it was right around maybe a little less than 3 billion years old. And ever since then, it's been forming fewer and fewer and fewer stars. I believe, if I've got my memory correct, that the peak star formation rate back then, back 11 billion years ago or so, uh, it formed about 40 times as many stars back then as it's forming today. So when you look back across cosmic time, um, you are seeing basically this hotbed of star formation gradually decreasing as we come forward in time to the present day. Absolutely. And I think uh, one of the most exciting parts about connecting um, high redshift galaxies or galaxies that were potentially formed when the universe was, let's say, one-tenth or one-fifth its current age is that you're comparing a star-forming galaxy to, to its potential descendant today um, that may not be star-forming anymore. In fact, most galaxies that end up in galaxy clusters are what we call red and dead. They uh, have been forming stars. They get influenced by the potential well of a galaxy cluster somewhere during their lifetime. Um, and due to both internal and external processes, uh, star, form star formation basically quenches. So actually galaxy clusters, it turns out, are uh, a, a, a great site for, for finding galaxies that don't form stars or basically are evolving in a very passive fashion with very, very limited star formation. I think that's really fascinating because to me, if I want to look for a place where 
we haven't formed stars in a really long time, my go-to place is going to be globular clusters, right? We have these little, uh, like, basically Death Star ball of stars, uh, a few, maybe between one and 200 of them in the halo of our own galaxy. And many of these, when we look at them, you know, you make what's called a Hertzsprung-Russell diagram of your stars inside, where you look at the color of the stars and you look at the brightness of the stars and you plot them out this color magnitude diagram and what you'll see for a brand new cluster a cluster that's just formed stars right now is you're gonna see well we have these faint red stars down at one corner of the diagram and then these bright blue stars up at the other corner of the diagram and if I draw roughly a diagonal line that's the diagram when I first form stars then if I let these stellar populations age, the most massive ones, the bluest, hottest, brightest ones, they burn through their fuel the fastest and they die first. So they start peeling off of this diagram and based on how bright and blue the stars that have already peeled off of this diagram are, I can say, oh, look, the stars here are this old because they haven't formed new stars in 2 billion years or 5 billion years or in some cases even 12 or 13 billion years. What you're telling me is that when you have a galaxy in a galaxy cluster, uh, star formation basically gets accelerated. Uh, you'll have these, you know, opportunities to form new stars copiously and you will have pressures on the galaxy that start stripping the gas which is what you need to form new stars out of the galaxy so when we look in the centers of these galaxy clusters it is very common to find these giant elliptical galaxies these large massive behemoths that the stars inside are primarily red, that this is a very gas-poor or even gas-free environment, and when you make a diagram of the stars you see or you infer what that diagram will be from the aggregate light you receive, you can start to say, wow, this galaxy might not have formed any stars at all for somewhere around 9 or 10 billion years, which to me, that we can look at a galaxy millions or even billions of light years away and draw those kinds of conclusions, that's, that's really remarkable. Um, same, exactly. Um, I, I find... I, th I find myself doing stellar population synthesis for precisely those reasons. You could start with an initial condition of a potential population of stars. You can build your Hertzsprung-Russell diagrams and you can give these stellar population models sort of an idea of how to evolve. And um, then you fit these models to observations from clusters. And you, what you find in these galaxies is that uh, these models don't want any young stars to exist in these galaxies, young blue stars that are sort, you know, sort of uh, the the stars that that are uh, uh, that that evolve beyond a few million years and and die potentially in a supernova. And when you look at these galaxies, which potentially look like elliptical galaxies and clusters, you're like you said, absolutely perfectly. Um, you're both basically seeing older stellar populations that are just passively evolving. 
clusters do give you clusters do give you an opportunity to revitalize or revamp star formation uh, i think rejuvenation is the correct term for for those episodes uh, but uh, what i will say though is the general understanding of cluster populations at the moment is that um, somewhere around between restaurant 1 and 2 star forming galaxies and clusters transition to a quiescent population um, which for example led to the clusters that we see today around restaurant point 3 so i'm talking about uh, times when the age of the universe was somewhere between uh, 3 and 6 giga years when there were star forming galaxies in these clusters that due to a wide range of processes um became quiescent populations all the way to clusters that we see near our near our own galaxy So let me let me ask you about something then because you brought up a couple of words like quiescent and quench that I think are worth diving into further uh not just because I like keywords but because these are um these are important processes in understanding what's happening right so if i say i'm going to let a galaxy fall into a galaxy cluster and what's going to happen when it does well it'll probably undergo some sort of burst of star formation and it's going to produce lots of new stars um but it's not going to number 1 take all of the gas in the galaxy and form new stars out of it some of the gas is going to form stars and then it's going to get quenched um so um that's something where you're going to sort of have this star formation and then something's going to happen to stop more stars from forming inside of it now we can't ever watch this happen galaxies evolve on too long of a time scale for us to watch it go from a hey i'm actively forming stars to oh no my star formation process got quenched and now i'm not star- forming stars anymore but with large numbers of galaxies you can find galaxies where okay it is actively forming and it is actively forming and it's looks like it's stopped actively forming and it looks like it's been a little while since it's actively formed stars so you can't look at one galaxy and say this is exactly how this galaxy is evolving but you can find large numbers of similar galaxies in slightly different stages of evolution and that allows you to say oh here's what's happening when a galaxy falls into a cluster forms stars and then stops forming stars and gets quenched so if i were to ask you hey uh what goes on in a galaxy in between okay it's about to form stars and now star formation has quenched in it have we been able to sort of put together a coherent framework for what precisely is happening within a galaxy during this critical time um so that, that's a i i think that's a pretty big picture question and um we have some idea of what could potentially be happening between a galaxy that is forming stars given the gas in the galaxy um and it's sort of quenching component and the two main questions that we ask when we uh, try to try to figure this out is um when did quenching happen did it happen close to when we observed the galaxy or further back in time and how fast did it happen 
uh, whether it happened uh, using something we call a slow quenching process or a fast quenching, quenching process. For example, um, when two galaxies that are spatially adjacent merge together, it's possible that um, uh, the inclusion of new stars in a typical galaxy uh, from this merger can lead to uh, a bigger supply of gases, which increases star formation and, and, and changes how we understand these, this quenching process. On the other hand, if it's a merger, which is something we call a dry merger without any exchange of uh, cold gas that eventually leads to forming stars, then you're looking at um, uh, sort of a different outcome. And um, there are all sorts of things going on in a typical galaxy, including, for example, the presence of black holes in AGN, which can lead to a feedback loop of star formation, where gas that wasn't previously existing in a galaxy gets added to the galaxy, or vice versa, um, gas that's existing in a galaxy that gets completely ejected due to AGN jets, uh, that can again influence this the pace of quenching. And all of these signatures in a multi, if we study a galaxy in a panchromatic way, uh, we beautifully brought up earlier, um, can basically shed so much light on these specific uh, choices that we have in connecting a galaxy in its star forming phase and its sort of quote unquote quenched phase. That's really interesting. Um, and then with the within these galaxies, I know you can have galaxies that actually have had multiple major waves of star formation in them, where you look at the galaxy and you say, oh, there's evidence that it had a huge wave of star formation 12 billion years ago, and then another one 7 billion years ago, but none since. And then there are other galaxies that you look at and you'll say like, oh, actually, it, it had this happen uh, much more recently. Um, and you can, there, there should be, with this panchromatic analysis, um, there should be a way to sort of look at any individual galaxy and sort of say, okay, um, based on these properties, here's its reconstructed history. And what I always get excited about is, number one, you can look at sort of the average galaxy in the environment or a typical galaxy and say, what are the range of outcomes that we have there that we expect there? But then you're going to have the weirdos, the oddballs, and the outliers. And those, to me, get really exciting because those are the ones that aren't doing what you expect, that aren't doing the average thing. It's like the old Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other. And I I always get really excited about that. I know you're still a junior person in the field, but you've done an outstanding job at working on precisely some of those things where you've pulled out, you know, from within these large data sets, you've pulled out, hey, Here's a really interesting thing to look at. Uh, what are some of the things we should know about these outlier events and outlier galaxies that we find within galaxy clusters? Uh, so, uh, if you're very generous and, and spot on as usual about uh, um, about how exciting it is to study ga galaxy evolution these days, I, I'm a big proponent of. Um, panchromatic studies, right? And uh, just to, just to um, preface sort of answering your question with something that I, uh, you brought up, which is you study UV 
observations of galaxies and you're looking at emission coming from uh, neighborhoods of the youngest stars, which shed light on very recent star formation in these galaxies. And then you combine that with infrared and radio observations, which are mostly uh, in emission uh, from the environments of older star populations. And you combine these two. And like you said, you basically have a map of all episodes of star formation in the galaxy, which by day by day is getting more and more accurate with the development of better statistical models and and um, sort of uh, more observations or more diverse set of observations. And I think to me, uh, the most exciting part is that we can use the same sort of uh, building of, of, of observations and, and models that allow us to understand these physical properties to not only capture sort of the standard ones, the standard galaxies in the cluster or, or, or in the field, but also some of the, the weird galaxies. Galaxies that, for example, uh, have just had an episode of a star formation, uh, which we sometimes call a post-starburst galaxy, which are extremely bright and have a lot of emission, but also have a lot of absorption features, which means gas, uh, which means photons that were supposed to reach us are not reaching because of some sort of absorption in the intermediate medium. Um, I'm personally very excited about all sorts of galaxies. Most of the things that I'm thinking about uh, sort of in the last few months has been around these red and dead galaxies where not a lot of activity is happening. But some of my work on a day-to-day -day basis has to do with galaxies that are extremely massive uh, have, and they've had multiple episodes of star formation in a very short time um, and sort of their observational signatures. You so I don't know what? if I've done a good job answering your question there. Well, I, I think any answer you give that uh, gives us a broad view of the landscape of what's there and also makes me want to ask a bunch more questions is a pretty good answer. Uh, so when I start thinking about what you just talked about, about the different types of galaxies and stellar populations that are out there and the different signals we get from panchromatic observatories, uh, it makes me wonder about uh, what I always consider the biggest and most obvious problem in astronomy, which is that whenever we look at the universe, uh, we are going to be biased. The objects we're going to see most easily in, in the greatest amount of detail um, and with the greatest amount of usable data from it are going to be the brightest and closest objects. In astronomy, we call this Malmquist bias. Um, so you know, when you look at the stars in the night sky with your naked eye, a large fraction of these stars that we see are the brightest and bluest stars intrinsically in the galaxy. We see lots of O-class and B-class stars with our naked eye. And yet, if you were to ask, okay, there are like 6,000 naked eye stars I can see from anywhere on the globe, and uh, a lot of them are these O and B stars. If you were to ask, okay, and over the entire galaxy, what percent of stars are O and B stars, uh, you get some number like 0.1%. Almost none of the stars in our galaxy are O and B stars. O and B stars 
are these brightest, bluest stars that, like you said earlier, they live the shortest amount of time, they burn through their fuel their fastest, and they disappear first because they've reached the end of their lifetimes, which means once they die, you're left with these redder, lower mass, cooler stars that live for longer. When we are looking at the galaxies out there within these galaxy clusters, doesn't that bias also get us, no matter what wavelength we're looking at, that we're going to see predominantly the galaxies that shine brightest in whatever wavelength we're looking at? And so do we worry, do we need to worry that we're missing out on not just the dimmer, fainter objects that are out there, but also perhaps the most common objects that are out there that are just beneath or, you know, near the limits of our observational capabilities. Oh, absolutely. I think uh, 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 we we miss out on faint objects regardless of uh, what, what environment we, we sit in. Um, what's exciting about studying sort of red and dead galaxies, which are in shape-wise are mostly uh, elliptical, is that most of the young star stellar emission doesn't exist anymore, which means this sort of outshining effect where uh, in a galaxy, uh, O and B stars are giving us most of the photons, but most of the stellar mass of the galaxy is actually coming from uh, 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 stars that are not O and B. Uh, that effect decreases to some extent. Um, and one of the things that we do, at least I attempt to do in, in the samples that I work with is I try to calculate properties such as stellar mass, which are uh, which is not necessarily a direct observable. Uh, you observe the luminosity and you use some models to calculate the, the, the amount of stellar mass in a galaxy. Um, and we sort of make a, a threshold cut on, uh, on that, that for a given epoch observations in our sample, we observe all galaxies above, let's say, uh, uh, 10 to the 10 solar masses. And um, making sort of these uh, very uh, intentional cuts on your data sets, uh, knowing very well the properties of these galaxies um, allows us to mitigate some of the bias that you're talking about, not all. And I think quantifying those biases is a huge part of um, any analysis that I do on a daily basis. You know, that makes a lot of sense. What what I'm basically hearing is you're saying, look, uh, we want to make sure that the information we're extracting and inferring from these galaxies is actually telling us what we're trying to investigate. So, for example, if I wanted to go to... Uh, a neighbor's house during the Christmas season and look at their Christmas lights, uh, I wouldn't go in direct sunlight because it's very hard to pull out the Christmas light signal over the signal of direct sunlight that swamps it. I'd be much better off going at night where you know, it's in much starker relief. I can see how the Christmas lights shine against the dark backdrop of night much better than I can against the blazing sun of the day. And what you're saying is, look, these red and dead galaxies are like that. If I look at other galaxies that are full of these bright blue stars, um, 
that you know that literally I'm being outshined by these massive suns. Some of the some of the stars that we see, the individual stars that we see, can shine as bright as somewhere around eight or nine million times our own sun, and our own sun can shine perhaps a thousand times as bright as some of the red dwarfs that are out there, like like Proxima Centauri, the closest star to our own. So when you're saying, I look at these red and dead galaxies, um, the problem isn't necessarily that the galaxies are faint. There are still, with good enough observatories, large populations of these red and dead galaxies that we can sample. The the bonus of looking at them is that you don't have all of this, I'm going to say, pollutive uh, new starlight to contaminate these older populations that you're trying to look at. So from that point of view, it kind of makes sense that, you know, when you see these red and dead galaxies, you're actually going to be able to probe these environments and these uh, populations of stars that that are the more common but less intrinsically luminous uh, stars in the universe. You're going to get to see what they're like today after having aged for billions of years. And, and that piece of information or those pieces of information has to be incredibly valuable as well, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And um, I just have to say that Christmas analogy, uh, Christmas light analogy is one of the best thing, best sort of comparisons I've ever heard. So I hope you'll allow me to use it with proper attribution. <laughs> if, if anyone asks me, I'll just forever tell them, yeah, Gorov taught me this and I learned it from him. Uh, so it's yours. It's absolutely uh, yours. Uh, this is this is fantastic. Um, so uh, when I when I think about what's out there in these galaxy clusters. Um, I also notice uh, every galaxy cluster I've ever looked at, um, all of the galaxies in there are never going to be ellipticals. When I look at these galaxy clusters, I'm still always going to wind up seeing uh, large numbers of spiral galaxies in there as well. I've noticed that if I look close to the center of a cluster, I'm more likely to find ellipticals than anywhere else. But if I look towards the outskirts, ellipticals are still rare and spirals are much more common. In addition, I worry about dark energy and the universe because from a cosmology point of view, I know that, okay, look, the universe expands and the universe cools and the universe gravitates. So these overdense regions, and it's really hard to get more overdense than a galaxy cluster, uh, is going to draw all of the surrounding matter into it, but only to a point, only as long as gravitation makes it easy for the expansion to slow down and matter to fall in. Once the universe starts accelerating, which is to say once dark energy becomes a dominant component for the expansion of the universe, which happened about half the universe ago, about 7 billion years ago, uh, now we're in this situation where all the matter that I haven't gravitationally, um, well, where I haven't won the tug of war between the expansion and gravitation yet, uh, I'll forever lose it. So it seems like at some point, galaxy evolution, or rather cluster evolution, um, 
it reached sort of a maximum of like, okay, like things were falling in and things were growing and new matter was coming in. And then over the more recent few billions of years that have happened, I would expect, well, with dark energy, um, am I getting fewer galaxies that fall into clusters? Are the clusters growing at slower rates? And have they even on large parts, uh, stopped growing altogether. Uh, it seems like when I worry about this long-term evolution, I have to start thinking about the rest of the universe and what's going on around it. Is this something that we can actually see in the data, or is this something that, um, you know, well, we, we think it should be there, but it isn't apparent. What what observationally have we learned about the universe from looking at how these clusters evolved and looking, like, I, like we talked about earlier, from the inside out, how you have different galaxy populations at different distances from the center within the galaxy cluster? Uh, so, Ethan, I'll be honest, this is a fantastic question that I think uh, is something maybe I'm not qualified to answer, primarily because I'm not a sort of a cluster expert. But what I do know is that observationally, uh, astronomers are really excited about studying what we call the cosmic web, which is uh, sort of this uh, dark matter that is laced with galax galaxies and gas um, between larger cluster, uh, cluster scale halos. So it's kind of like a supply chain for, for, for these clusters when it comes to baryonic matter. And just by measuring velocities of gas uh, in, these, in, in, in the cosmic web, uh, one can potentially observe uh, how fast or slow sort of uh, the, the, the transfer of matter is happening into these uh, larger potential wells. Um, I'm, I will be honest, I'm personally not uh, really familiar with the literature around this work. But I'll be I'll be very excited to to know more. Well, we we all have uh, spots where we can learn more. Certainly, I know I do. Um, so you know that's part of why I have people like you on the podcast uh, because I I like what you're able to tell me. Um, when you look at the uh, galaxies, we'll say within a cluster, then because I know that is more your specialty. Um, is there anything you can tell us about the galaxies found close to the center and far away from the center of the cluster and why, at least to my untrained eye, they appear so different from one another? Um, yeah, so uh, I think the observation is spot on. Um, there are more elliptical galaxies closer to uh, uh, sort of the center of a cluster, and that has to do with cluster environment. Um, when two galaxies um, merge together, um, uh, two uh, spiral galaxies merging together, uh, they're more likely to form an elliptical galaxy. It's uh, it's extremely unlikely for elliptical galaxies to merge and uh, the angular momentum of the system uh, develop in a way where uh, the galaxy becomes a spiral galaxy. So when you're saying that you're observing more spiral galaxies on the outskirts of clusters, these are galaxies that have not yet uh, sort of been absorbed into the potential well of the galaxy cluster. Um, uh, it's probably going to be another billion or a billion and a half years before uh, this spiral galaxy uh, and sort of its outskirts or, or its, or its, or its, or, or its uh, spiral arms are influenced by either the gas of the intra-cluster medium or other galaxies via mergers. 
And when you look at galaxies at the center of clusters, these are galaxies that are more likely to have been uh, residents of, of these galaxy clusters for anywhere between uh, one and six billion years. And when you are looking at these specific clusters, you uh, can bet on the fact that these galaxies have gone through some, some uh, a, a wide range of physical processes um, um, in terms of interacting with nearby galaxies in the cluster, as well as the dark matter potential and the intercluster medium gas, which is anywhere between 10 and uh, uh, one and 10 million Kelvin in, 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 in temperature. So is it fair to say that if I look in a galaxy cluster and I see a gas-rich spiral in the cluster, uh, that it's exceedingly unlikely that that spiral galaxy has been in the cluster for a very long period of time? Is that sort of telling me, oh, this, uh, this is the new kid in town over here because it hasn't had its gas stripped away, it hasn't merged enough times to form an elliptical galaxy and uh you know obviously if it's a gas-rich galaxy it's it's not going to be either red or dead um is that is that a fair conclusion to draw i think i think if i if if, if the if, if you were to ask me yes and i'm sure there are exceptions to uh, this specific outcome of galaxy evolution inside a cluster but on average you're likely to see uh redder, deader galaxies, if that's even a thing, um, that look more like elliptical galaxies um, near the center of the cluster, if not at the dead center of the cluster. Yeah, absolutely so, right. Well, that's, that's pretty good stuff. One of the things I know you've also been involved in, um, and I saw that you, uh, you actually wrote a paper for the Astro 2020 Decadal on this, um, is about astrobytes. And for those of you listeners who don't know, astrobytes is a wonderful program that encourages early career scientists uh, to start writing about new papers that come out and new discoveries that come out in the field. Um, and this is a great way not only for uh, early career people in the field to sort of get experience reading, parsing out, extracting conclusions from understanding uh, and communicating the results of other researchers to the general community. It's a great resource for people who are studying astrophysics who might not have the time to go in depth through a whole slew of papers themselves to get a nice, concise summary of them. Um, have you been an Astrobytes author in the past? And if so, uh, what would you like our listeners to know about the Astrobytes program and how it affects education, science communication, and for some people, even uh, accessibility to uh, learning about all the information inside? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up, Ethan. Uh, so Astrobytes is, uh, uh, has to be one of the best collaborations that I've had the privilege of uh, being a part of. So I started writing for Astrobytes in 2016, if I, if I have my dates correct. Um, um, as you rightly said, it's the Astro PhD Digest that uh, is pretty well established now. Uh, uh, it was started in uh, 2010. Um, 
And for the last five years, I've basically been involved in uh, writing uh, for the first two years of my uh, time with Astrobytes. I, I, I wrote uh, uh, science communication articles that were geared towards uh, uh, senior undergraduate and junior graduate students who are looking for a way to uh, um, gain more access to uh, uh, archive uh, literature uh, and take a step away from the jargon that is often seen in these papers. And uh, since then, I've been part of a wide variety of efforts within Astrobytes. Um, I, I've been part of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. Um, I uh, sort of was uh, a co-administrator um, um, last year. And at the moment, I'm involved in dealing with the interface of Astrobytes and the American Astronomical Society, which supports Astrobytes. So I'm sort of the liaison between the two organizations. Um, I think that... Astrobytes at the moment is a great model for uh, sort of promoting not only just accessibility to a big aspect of our day-to-day -day research as astronomers, which is going on archive and reading papers or understanding what the subfield uh, different from yours looks like um, um, in, in current times. Not only does it sort of uh, solve that sort of a problem that is a huge barrier to entry for early career astronomers, but it's also now become sort of a, 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 an avenue for a very inclusive form of professional development um, for graduate students who are interested in writing science or doing science communication. Um, at least that's how I got into uh, the collaboration because I'm, I'm very excited about writing um, and uh, sharing my work and other people's work with, with, with communities. No, and and hopefully uh, being on this podcast will give your voice an opportunity to extend a little bit farther uh, out into the general public as well. One of the things that I'm curious about because of what you just said about how important Astrobytes is for giving people glimpses into other subfields besides their own is because you work primarily on stellar populations within galaxy clusters, have you discovered uh, that there are either general misconceptions or general, um, you know, things that people don't quite understand about your field that you wish they did? Are there are there things that you would like? Look, I wish everyone just understood this about stellar populations in galaxy clusters, but everyone seems to have it wrong? So I think that's a, I think that's a great question. And instead of uh, talking about the physics of it, I would talk about sort of the impression of what folks have of the field. And I think that seems to be the biggest mis mis misconception. Um, I think um, I wish more people appreciated that a lot of the work that happens when you synthesize stellar populations using models um, in, in, in clusters is uh, you're looking at a statistical sample of data. So you're making aggregate guesses or, or, or inferences from your observations, uh, as opposed to being extremely specific about the life history of one specific galaxy. And I, I wish there was a better understanding both within me and my, my peers, as well as the general community about the role that biases and uncertainties play in how much and how little we know about stellar populations and what it takes to go from uh, sort of the microscopic phenomena of, uh, of, of um, 
photon emissions in atoms like hydrogen, calcium, uh, and oxygen, and connect that to macroscopic properties like uh, galaxy formation and evolution. So uh, I think this idea of quantifying your uncertainties um, is is something that I've heard from a lot of early career researchers in recent years. That you know when I when I was a grad student, my very first paper was actually on observational cosmology, and it's the only observational paper I ever did. And I remember wondering about all sorts of possible errors, all sorts of systematics. And the the senior uh, professor that I was working with on the paper told me, you know, the big problem with systematics, the big problem with these uncertainties is that you quantify and identify all the ones that you know of. And if your result then lines up with what you expect, you stop looking. But if it doesn't line up what you, with what you expect, you keep looking. And when you keep looking, you always find more. And then if you found a plausible explanation that will bring your results into line with your expectations, you stop looking again. And I'm curious if in your experience, this is a problem that persists. Uh, absolutely. And I think um, um, this uh, resonates so much with me because the last 48 hours in my life have been about trying to answer this exact question for a paper that I'm trying to write at the moment, <laughs> which is uh, not only quantifying the uncertainty on sort of the known sources uh, of uncertainty, but as well as the, the, the unknown uh, sources. And I think that... Um, I read papers today that deal with star populations in the most massive quiescent galaxies, so red and dead galaxies that are that have assembled a significant chunk of their mass. And I see a lot of care uh, in quantifying these uncertainties, whether they're known or unknown. And I think the field is very slowly, in my opinion, moving carefully in a positive direction. And I just want to be part of uh, that journey. And um, I think... Um, I don't think we've got it completely locked down yet, uh, especially because there are so many limitations to not only the data we have so far, um, but the range of wavelengths that we have the data for and the model space that has been built to facilitate the analysis that I'm trying to do today. Um, yeah. That's really interesting. It's interesting to sort of get a, a broader view of this of this field. Can I ask you if you were to sort of imagine like, okay, we've got this really great data set. Uh, it's comprehensive. It's large. It's deep. It's multi-wavelength. It teaches us it allows us to measure and know all sorts of properties of all types of galaxies within and not within galaxy clusters. Um, if you had such a data set, because I envision uh, that certainly 10 to 20 years from now, uh, that's exactly the type of data set we'll have. Um, what types of questions that we can't answer today would you be able to answer in the future with that type of improved data? Oh, that's, a, that's an incredibly uh, uh, thoughtful question. And I think the role of the environment has to be up there. Uh, if we had the perfect data, if we had the perfect models, we would solve the question of, of what, to what degree does the environment of a galaxy, especially around a galaxy cluster, impact 
uh, the star formation histories of these galaxies, given other limitations of what a star formation history even means for a galaxy, what an age even means, what mass even means. So ignoring all that, I think we would be able to lock that down pretty solidly, especially because the the advent of the perfect data, for example, would allow us to even hone our uh, existing simulations to uh, uh, to an extent where comparisons are actually physically plausible. Well, that's that's a that's a good thing to look forward to. I mean, we when I think about the environment in the galaxy cluster. Everything I've learned about it has been a surprise to me because I had viewed early on a galaxy cluster as, oh, there's a whole bunch of galaxies and they're gravitationally bound together. And that was how I looked at it. And that's foolish because one of the things that's in there, and we know this from gravitational lensing studies, is most of the dark matter is not in the individual galaxies in a galaxy cluster, but rather in an enormous aggregate halo that includes and goes beyond all of the individual galaxies within the cluster. We know that there is mass and stars in between the galaxies, that there have been studies even recently about the intracluster light coming from the space between the galaxies, and it is substantial. I've seen studies about globular clusters that exist in the space between galaxies. I've seen trails of stars, new for newly forming stars emerging from these ram pressure stripped galaxies where the trailing gas behind them you can actively see forming stars so when people start saying oh the environment of galaxy clusters doesn't matter i i think it's something you ignore at your own peril and i'll be honest i probably can't even accurately conceive of how these might be biasing and affecting the conclusions we're drawing today about galaxies within clusters yeah i think i think what if, if if I may summarize this, I feel like we're bringing complementary things to the pitch, uh, to, to to the table, right? I try to run away from the cosmology of it all, uh, partly because I feel it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, uh, but um, a lot of folks are really excited about understanding galaxy clusters from the perspective of gravitational lensing. You observe how much lensing is happening because of a cluster, and uh, that basically allows you to build a map of uh, the. The, the cluster dark matter halo and uh, it's, it's its own idiosyncrasies. And I'm very excited to see what folks that do that kind of science are trying to understand dark matter halo profiles, what they are up to in the near future. Well, for someone who claims to be running away from it, you have done a lousy job because I, uh, I unfortunately for you, because uh, I'm going to bring it up now, uh, I actually first learned of of your like who you are because of this paper you wrote with the uh, Cool Lamps collaboration, where you discovered and you were the lead author on this paper an extraordinarily bright galaxy, super distant at a redshift of five, which basically means the light from this galaxy is coming to us from when the universe was mm, around one billion years after the Big Bang. So roughly, roughly about 13 billion years ago uh, that this light is coming to us and this galaxy happens to be oriented in such a way that it happens to be 
behind a massive galaxy cluster. And this massive galaxy cluster is not weakly gravitationally lensing, but strongly gravitationally lensing this background galaxy, which means the light from it gets stretched and distorted, but also magnified tremendously. And if I if I interpreted this paper correctly, I think the light we're observing from this object is about 30 times brighter than the light we'd see if this galaxy cluster wasn't there intervening. And so when I think about that discovery and I see your name as the lead author of the paper, I'm like, oh, this guy understands galaxy clusters and cosmology. Um, but maybe I should instead be asking, you know, you you were very excited by this discovery. Um what do you think is so remarkable other than, you know, everyone likes, oh, well, it's the brightest and most lensed thing at this distance we've ever seen? Like, what, what is the big picture of this? How does this galaxy tie into what you consider, you know, the important things that go on in the universe and in galaxy clusters? Um, I'm I'm so glad you brought cool lamps up because um, um, yeah I, I am I'm quite excited about this this work and uh, I think uh, if I may give a little bit of context of what what uh, this 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 uh, paper came out of is essentially a collaboration that started at the University of Chicago uh, um, as part of um, a new uh, undergraduate course uh, that began in uh, January 2020. And Ethan, the most exciting part about this is this is the first of its kind in the astronomy department at UChicago, based on a very well-tested framework of building courses called CURE, which is course-based undergraduate research experience. Uh, senior undergraduate students in a university setting come together under the tutelage of an advisor, and they do peer education and collaboration, uh, both from a learning perspective as well as doing real research. And the goal that um, uh, my advisor and the PI and instructor of the, uh, the, 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 the this particular um, field course class, uh, Mike Ladders, uh, sort of gave me the opportunity to be the teaching assistant for that class. So I played the role of the teaching assistant and co-instructor, and we led a group of 11 undergraduate students at the University of Chicago over a period of six to nine months um, where we looked at recent public imaging data and our goal was to find strong gravitational lenses using visual inspection. So you can imagine 10 undergraduate students looking at um, approximately a million lines of sight of cutouts of images and looking and scoring whether they think visually uh, a picture they're looking at looks like a gravitational lens or not. And mind you, strong gravitational lens or not. And out of that, out of that sort of search over, over many, many weeks uh, was born the Cool Lamps collaboration, which is, as most things astronomy, very cheekily named Chicago Optically Selected Lenses located at the margins of public surveys. And our first ever paper was the, the study that uh, um, uh, you brought up, which is uh, we uh, were successful in gaining follow-up data across many different wavelengths um, so both photometry and spectroscopy of the brightest galaxy that has been observed in the rest of five universe, which like you perfectly pointed out, would not have been able to observe if 
not for the magnification due to the strong gravitational lensing of the intermediate cluster. The exciting part about this galaxy is that just like the cluster galaxies that I study at low redshift, uh, which is not so low, but relative to redshift five, uh, the galaxies that I study in clusters are pretty low redshift. Um, I am doing stellar population synthesis and the data that we have for this cool lamps galaxy as well. And what we essentially found from the data we have so far is that this is a galaxy that's pretty massive. It's a galaxy that is um, has formed a mass that is within a few times that of the Milky Way. Uh, as of today. And that is pretty remarkable for a galaxy that only had 1 billion years to form its net amount of stars. And we find, given current data, that this galaxy has a very uh, rich uh, UV spectrum, which means it has a decent amount of uh, uh, young star populations. It has very little dust attenuation, which means something must have happened uh, amidst the multiple episodes of star formation in this galaxy to allow the dust to basically scatter away and not be present in the observations. Um, and that basically brings us to, well, what happened in this galaxy? And the way we're trying to answer that question is by requesting follow-up data. So within a year, and this is the most exciting part in my opinion for this galaxy, um, we will actually have radio data, we'll have space-based Hubble data, and this is my favorite part, uh, uh, JWST data in the infrared to study uh, the sort of the rest frame optical emission that's coming from this galaxy. So we'll actually have a very close to complete picture of what's going on in this galaxy. And I'm super duper stoked to actually get my hands on that data. I mean, I can't even imagine how stoked you are to get JWST data for a galaxy that, for all intents and purposes, uh, you were really only able to identify and pull out as interesting because you had, uh, you know... I won't say it's citizen science because these are undergraduate students, not public citizens, but you basically don't have people who've been trained as professional astrophysicists just looking at this. And you can say with a little bit of, of prep work, uh, hey, here's what you should be looking for. Here's evidence of strong gravitational lensing, and they can manually go through all of this. We're, we're not yet at the point where artificial intelligence is better at pulling these lenses out than people are, uh, although I imagine someday we'll get there too. Um, and then based on the ones they pull out, you can say, okay, let's look at the properties. Which one's the most magnified? Oh, this is a really interesting object. And just like many of the most interesting objects we find in the young universe, uh, quasars, black holes, galaxies, uh, etc., we have this same question we have for many of the most uh, extreme objects, which is, how did this thing get so big or so evolved or so extreme so fast? And, you know, it's my optimistic hope that particularly particularly with the James Webb data, that might be something we're able to extract. That might be something we're able to say, oh, here's what's going on. And it doesn't have dust because it had enough UV radiation to ionize or break apart or evaporate that dust. Or the dust that's left is there, but it is uh, 
pushed out too far that it uh, it's too thin of a layer to basically absorb things or whatever it is that we learn, I hope we can find a solution because um, always the most exciting possibility is, you know, we looked at everything and we found that there is no way to explain this within our current theories and that means we've discovered something new and exciting, even more exciting than we've previously thought. And, and that's a possibility that's on the table here. I, I couldn't agree more. I think, I think uh, even if I leave aside the multivalent aspect of, of this project, which is um, going to make this the most comprehensively characterized object uh, in the early universe, for sure. Um, I'm excited about getting uh, sort of combining this, this spectral information that we're going to be getting with JWST to spatial information. So strong gravitational lensing, uh, its, it's imprint is basically f high redshift galaxies getting magnified and smeared into an arc. And uh, what you're essentially seeing is, ex is sort of this extended arc providing you with spatial information. And the numbers, the way they work out in, in, in the case of this specific Coulomb's galaxy is that we'll actually be able to, in a given pixel, tell with, with, with quite a lot of confidence the, the properties of stellar populations at the scale of approximately tens of parsecs or you know anywhere between 30 and 100 light years, which is just remarkable for a galaxy at this, at this distance. I mean, that, that really does sound fascinating. And also it makes me want to ask you, you know, when you look ahead to what observatories or what types of uh, new telescopes are there on the horizon, um, is there anyone that you are super excited about that you think, you know, we have lots of questions about galaxy clusters, their environments, and the stars inside them. And when we start getting data from this observatory about these objects, oh, I'm just salivating thinking about the number of things we'll learn. So I... I, I... I love how topical this question is from you, Ethan, especially since we are at the cusp of receiving uh, inf more information about uh, the Decado survey. Um, but I'm very excited about uh, the Roman Space Telescope. And it, the reasons are something I've already mentioned uh, uh, here, which is it's, it's going to be an observatory that will hopefully allow us to statistically survey the, uh, the night sky in a way that is systematic, in a way that allows us to get a, a, a robust sample of galaxies um, in, a, in a wide range of, uh, with a wide range of observations in wavelength space, uh, such that we can actually do systematic studies. The, the issue at the moment, as, as, as we, we both know, is space-based resources are very scarce, which means uh, not, uh, which means the process of being able to obtain um, uh, a large sample of galaxy observations is not as democratic as we'd like it to be. And with a galaxy survey that is uh, part of the mission concept of the Roman Space uh, Telescope, I'm very excited that all of us will be able to study large samples of galaxies together. I mean, that's 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 part of what it's all about. You know, I think a lot of us uh, 
who aren't directly involved in observational studies, we sort of think of like, oh, think about the frontier we'll push. Think about how much farther we'll be able to see or how much earlier we'll be able to see or how much fainter we'll be able to see. Um, and yeah, all of those things are interesting. All of those things give us new information. And they allow us to learn things that we we wouldn't be able to learn otherwise. But don't sleep on the power of statistics. Don't don't neglect how much more you gain by going from you know a hundred objects to a thousand to ten thousand to a hundred thousand to a million objects. Every Every time you increase that, you you are really viewing so much more of the universe. You are really expanding your understanding and your detailed understanding of how these underlying processes work and what might be going on there because, you know, you're able to sort of go from, okay, here's what we expect to, no, here's what we see and here's the distribution of what we see and here's what's happening on average and here's what's within the range of average and here's what the outliers are doing and here's why they might be doing that and then just like you're doing for this cool lamps galaxy that you discovered for the most interesting objects or the most unusual objects you can do follow-up studies where you examine them even more in depth the Nancy Grace Roman Telescope, for those of you who don't know, it's very similar to Hubble. It's going to be the same size. It's going to have the same amount of light gathering power, except it's going to be incredibly wide field. Whereas I believe the most powerful camera on Hubble uh, was an eight megapixel camera. I believe Nancy Grace Roman will have a 300 megapixel camera on it. And I believe that uh, Nancy Grace Roman is going to be able to deliver somewhere between 50 and 100 times the field of view of Hubble, which means that whatever you could view with Hubble in a year, you'll be able to view that same amount of sky at the same depth with the Nancy Grace Roman telescope in less than a week. And that to me, that's that's representative of not just advanced, but that's the answer to all the people who say, well, why don't we just build another Hubble is because we can do so much better 30 years later than we were able to do back in 1990. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like if um, if I was to be a little bit more greedy, I would say that, um, uh, that as the decadal process is, en uh, is ending, that uh, sort of gives the astronomy community in the United States a little bit more direction into what projects to fund in the next uh, 10 to 15 years. Uh, I would love if uh, the uh, the project named LUVOR would be funded, which is the uh, large UV optical IR surveyor project, a concept which is truly a multi-wavelength space observatory, allowing us to get the same data in a wide variety of wavelengths that's basically 10 times wider than any telescope that we that we know of. Yeah, I mean, the, the prospect of having a 15 meter ultraviolet optical infrared telescope, basically like Hubble or Nancy Roman, except uh, with maybe, you know, something like 50 times the light gathering power of either one. 
Um, I, I look at that and I'm just sort of blown away um, at the capabilities we'll have of looking at the universe. When you talk about galaxies in distant galaxy clusters today, a lot of times these galaxies barely show up as more than one pixel across. And one of the most amazing things that I've learned about Luvar is that for every Every single galaxy in the whole universe will be able to resolve it so that each pixel on it represents a distance no larger than just a few hundred light years across. So when you think about something like the Milky Way is a hundred thousand light years across, you're basically saying something that would be like two or three pixels today can be like two or three thousand pixels on a side with Louvoir. And that kind of information, that kind of precise information about what's out there in the distant universe, um, I can't even imagine what we'll learn with that type of data spanning, you know, just billions of years of cosmic time. And that makes the two of us. I'm super stoked. Um, I, I, I feel like I find myself to be uh, an astronomer that loves thinking of new ideas um, and um, um, new projects and, 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 and new telescopes are such a big part of, uh, of that for me. Uh, yeah. Well, that's that's wonderful. And Gaurav, I want to thank you for a really fascinating and wide ranging discussion about galaxy clusters, astronomy and what we have to look forward to in the future. I do want to give you an opportunity uh, since, you know, we have we have probably thousands of listeners out there who are going to listen to this. Do you have any final thoughts that you would like to leave our listeners with to have them take away uh, from this podcast? Um, yeah, thanks. Thank you. I'm so excited. I, I, it's been such an honor to be here. And um, if, if there was one thought, I think that would be that uh, astronomy is both about looking at exciting individual objects and statistical samples of galaxies. And at the end of the day, uh, the process of doing astronomy, whether that is observations, theory, uh, building models, uh, building instruments that take those observations, whatever path it may be, it's done at the end of the day by humans. And our choices influence where the field is going as much as the, uh, the physical processes behind the data that we collect. And I think uh, uh, both of these elements go extremely hand in hand when you're thinking about uh, whether individual galaxies or communities of galaxies uh, like galaxy clusters. Well, I think that's a wonderful message. And to everyone who's interested in astronomy, know that there is room for you to get involved, whether that's through theory, observation, computation, data analysis, or instrumentation. Um, there is an aspect of astronomy out there that I'm sure is right for you. Uh, so thank you to you, Gaurav, for being here and for speaking with us. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. Starts With a Bang is only made possible through the generous donation of our Patreon supporters. And I'd like to give a shout out thank you to everyone who supports us at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to... 
Chad Marler, Jeffrey David Maricini, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Charles Buchanan, Chris Jakutas, Dominic Turpin, John Mithot, John Van Balaguyan, Matt Conroe, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Punitive Expedition, Stefan Bernegger, William Blair, Andy Wall, Brian Terry, Danny, David Charney, Denier, Flo, Frank, George Church, Jerry Wilterding, John Kozura, Jose Enrique, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Judith Del Mar, Mark Armstrong, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Rafael Wojciech, Randall Slimak, Sean Foley, Vlad Pashkovsky, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andres Chovanek, Andrew Jason, Arnulfo Zepeda, Benhead, Bob Unger, Brainwise, Brett Minder, Carl Iddings, Christoph Hip, Dan Steelen, Darren Redfern, David Hibbets, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabriel Nader, Glenn McDavid, Hellbender, Hannah Kahn, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Javier Zazo, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Mike Mays, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shah, Sam Terzakian, Steve Shaber, Tina Talon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Vanden Heuvel, and Yunko S. Thanks to everyone for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang.